Welcome back to Death Walks With Us. I'm your host, Angela. In today's episode, I will be exploring a case about a murder in the Amish community. This is titled, The Case Known as the Amish Stud. Before I dive into this case, I want to discuss the Amish school massacre by a madman who I'm not naming. This shows what type of people the Amish can be and thought it was worth discussing before I dive into this case. This person murdered five little girls. There were five surviving victims, one being six-year-old Rosanna King. She suffered brain damage and had not been expected to live, but even though she did live, she has not been able to talk or walk or feed herself. This monster went into an Amish school and tied up the little girls and had all the little boys leave before executing the girls and then himself. The Amish forgave him, and to show how kind-hearted they can be, they brought food to his widow and supported her financially. It's not her fault, and this is how communities should be. Monsters like this man victimize their own families with their actions. They are victims too, a different kind of victim, but victims and should not be blamed. His wife did not cause his actions. That was all him, and the Amish recognized this. Though I don't understand this part, the Amish attended his funeral. According to some sources, after burying their daughters, the Amish families attended the funeral of the man who murdered their daughters. From what I have read, it seems funerals are not for the person who died, but a ritual done for people. I should be a little clearer. The Amish accept that death is part of life, and when a person dies, the Amish believes that person instantly went to either heaven or hell. There is nothing they can do to change how that person looks to God. There is no praying for that person. The focus of the funeral is on the goodness of God. Death is God's will. But maybe the Amish saw this as a way to show forgiveness and support his other victims. This murderer's mother is welcomed in the Amish community, and she goes and visits frequently with Rosanna, who is confined to a wheelchair and fed through a tube. Like many family members who lost loved ones to school shootings, the Amish visit surviving family members to offer support while they grieve. I have a little more I want to go over before I go into the case, as I think there is other major aspects of Amish life that are worth going over. In 1693, the Amish started coming to the Pennsylvania colony in America to escape religious persecution over their beliefs such as adult baptism, separation of church and state, and nonviolence. The world has changed in those 300 years, little has within the Amish world. Over the years, as the world makes technological advances, the Amish resisted, mostly because they viewed it as a threat to the communities. For example, the development of the automobile. They felt the automobile would encourage urban contact, changing their communities. Hence, they ban on cars. They believe they need to live simply and they tend to keep their secrets within the Amish community. They have to live this way to be right with God. But there are reasons why each group of Amish are different. The, um, I'm sure, sorry if I pronounced this wrong, Ordnug, which is
which is a German word for order, governs the rules of each Amish group. They decide together, so what is allowed in one group may not be allowed in another. This covers almost everything, even the color they can paint their barns, their hair length, regulations on their horse and buggies, if they can use modern technology, and in what context. For example, the family in this case had been allowed to have a refrigerator, but they could not use electricity. They had to get ice to put in the fridge to preserve their food. If they want to stay Amish, they are supposed to follow these rules. But at the same time, if they don't, they can confess their sins and be forgiven and go on as if they never broke a rule. It's not the Amish's place to judge. That's for God. I do want to point out that some Amish broke their silence because they felt this story needed to be told and because of them justice was served. Now on with the case. This case starts in the Amish community in a two-story house on Harrison Road, Apple Creek, Wayne County, Ohio. This county and the neighboring county are home to the majority of Ohio's Amish. We begin in the late hours of June 1st to the early hours of June 2nd, 2009. The eldest child had had a birthday party two days before and one of the five children went to the aunt's house while two cousins stayed to spend time at the Weaver home. All six children in that house that night were under the age of nine, the eldest having just turned nine. There had been a thunderstorm that night, causing the children to come downstairs and sleep with their 30-year-old mother and aunt, Barbara Weaver. At 11 p.m., the patriarch, Eli Weaver, aged 29, came home late from fishing. He carried the sleeping children upstairs, but he wouldn't be there for long as he was to leave again at 3.15 a.m. to go to the lake for more fishing. In the early hours of June 2nd, after the father had gone fishing, a person crept in through an unlocked basement door, changing the world of five little children forever. On June 2nd, the children began to wake, and when the mother had not come for the baby to feed, the children went to get her from bed. They entered her room at 8 a.m., seeing that their mother and aunt's lips were blue and she was cold to the touch. One of the children decided to pull the quilt that wrapped her body back, and that was when they saw the hole in her chest and the blood. Her eldest nine-year-old son ran across the street to the neighbor's house to get help. Barbara had been shot point-blank in the chest. This was a personal murder. Barbara and her sister Fanny Troyer, who she was close with and is important to Barbara's story, grew up as part of the Andy Weaver Amish group. This group is described as one of the most strictest conservative Amish groups there was. Remember, each group has different rules. Children in this group are educated to the eighth grade where their education is ended. Now, here are a few things I found interesting. There is a fear of education, especially for girls, just as there is a fear of use of technology, that they will take a person away from the Amish life. Amish girls play with faceless dolls because the Bible forbids graven images, and women have to have their hair covered because the Bible says 
only their husbands can see the glory of their hair. Amish life is romanticized because of the simple life, even though it is hard work. With the simple life, there is the idea that there is not much crime. But that is because Amish crime is not reported to law enforcement. It is dealt within the Amish community. If there's no reports, it will look like there is no crime. The police also tend to leave Amish issues to the Amish. There seems to be a trust that the Amish will handle it properly. There is a documentary on Peacock that will change your opinion on the Amish and crime. It's called Sins of the Amish. Survivors discuss the horrific abuse they suffered while Amish and how the Amish community silenced them how they were forced to forgive their abusers, and how the system of forgiveness did not hold their abusers accountable. Therefore, they kept raping and abusing their victims over and over. The Amish also tell the girls it is their fault for putting the ideas into males' heads. They need to be careful with how they dress and act as men can not help themselves. Yeah, it's quite disgusting. Anyways, Barbara and Eli knew each other as children, and at about 18 or 19, they began to spend more time together. Barbara wanted what other Amish women wanted, a mature, responsible husband and father to support the family. She wanted the Amish life. At first, Eli seemed to want this as well. Together, they would attend what the Amish call singing. On Sunday evenings, from all over, single Amish would gather for supper. There would be singing and socialization. Young Eli had considered himself to be a ladies' man, but after Rumspring, he decided to get baptized at 21. For those not familiar with the Amish, Rumspring is the time in a young Amish person's life where they are allowed to take part in the outside world. It is where they are to decide if they want to stay Amish or not. Many do go wild and overindulge, but the vast majority decide to stay Amish. If they choose not to stay Amish, they have to give up everything, including their families. They cannot have contact with their families. It is psychologically damaging to have to make that choice. Anyways, Baptisms are very important to the Amish. You cannot be a member of the church until you are baptized. Therefore, you cannot marry. Eli decided to stay Amish and marry. The young couple had courted for a year before marrying in 1999. Because of Amish gender roles, women were expected to respect and submit to their husbands, but decisions were supposed to be made together. Everything was in Eli's name, and he controlled the money, refusing to give enough to Barbara. This is power and control. He wants to control Barbara through money to show her he has the power. This is called financial abuse. Barbara's duty as wife was to take care of the house. Eli earned the money in the shop, but he refused to give her enough to run the house. He did not give her enough to even feed herself and their children. The financial abuse was also done as a means to embarrass her. The church meets every other Sunday, and the women take turns making pies for after lunch. Eli would not give her enough money to make the pies, and that is highly embarrassing for an Amish woman. 
Eli was also very verbally abusive to Barbara. He would tell her how everything was her fault and throw his affairs in her face. He also withheld intimacy from her, the affection a husband was to show his wife. There were accounts that the children may have witnessed him pushing and shoving her, but never hitting her nor the children. If she had reported him to the church, an Amish leader admitted that officials would have asked her, quote, what did you do that your husband would treat you like this? Barbara stayed because of God's law, causing her to respect his position as husband. Barbara also most likely suffered sexual abuse from him. Barbara was uncomfortable with Eli's sexual requests, and her sister believes that Eli probably forced himself to Barbara when he wanted sex. Eli wanted oral sex, and Barbara was repulsed by the idea. It was not what Amish did. Also want to point out, the Amish are very strict with the Bible, and the spilling of the seed is taken seriously and not to be done. If she wouldn't give it to him, he would seek it elsewhere. In 2006, Eli abandoned Barbara and was living with an Englishwoman. English is what the Amish call the non-Amish. By leaving the Amish, Eli would have been shunned. Shunning is considered tough love to help members stick to the Amish way. It's not. It's about control. They cannot have both worlds. They cannot live any way but how their patriarchal leaders tell them. But with shunning, you just need to repent. You can be forgiven and accepted back into the order. Eli, though, struggled with this, but it's not an excuse for this to happen. Anyways, at this point, they had been living next to his parents. Eli was dependent on them, but after Eli left, Barbara packed up the kids and moved to Apple Creek to be within three miles of her sister. When Eli returned to the Amish, Barbara refused to move back to his parents' property, and instead his parents brought a house and shop to rent to the couple. Many of his new neighbors rejoiced that he came back to the Amish, but they did not want him living near them. The family business, Maysville Outfitters, a hunting and fishing store, was adjacent to the house, but yet Eli did not allow the children into his store. Behind the store was a what someone called a shanty. This was pretty much a community phone booth. They could not have telephones in their homes. The Amish liked visiting, and if they had phones in their homes, they thought people would be less likely to visit if they can just pick up a phone and call. Eli Weaver did not spend that much time at home. He often missed family dinners, even though he worked right next door to the house. Family dinners are very important to the Amish, and it is when they come together as a family, and is considered family time. Sometimes Eli would also disappear for weeks and months at a time. At one point, he did get caught having sex with another woman that was not his wife in his store. He, of course, repented and asked for forgiveness and was forgiven. Eli left one more time, but came back to the Amish. Like the first time, he repented and was forgiven. It's not the Amish's place to judge. Now, divorce is considered a sin among the Amish and is forbidden. 
That is why it took Barbara almost 10 years before she started to even consider divorce. But by then, it was too late for her. Now back to the day of the murder. June is considered the best month for fishing, and many men spend a good amount of their time fishing. June 2nd, at 3.15 a.m., after getting dropped off at 11 p.m., Eli was to be picked up to go fishing on Lake Erie, 70 miles away. When the fishing party came and knocked, there was no answer. It took Eli about 10 minutes to come out, and he gave a lame excuse, so lame his fellow fisherman and driver could not remember. According to the other fishermen, Eli acted very strange, very out of character. He was constantly checking his cell phone while trying to hide it because being Amish, he was not supposed to have one. When they stopped to eat, he ordered too much food, then barely ate any of it. And then he took his cell phone into the bathroom with him. Being that people did not know Eli had a cell phone number, the call went to the driver. And when the news reached Eli, while out fishing, he put on a good show of angst. Witnesses heard him crying, but they didn't see any tears. His fishing buddies thought Eli was a possible suspect, being the husband when they heard of Barbara's murder. This had seemed like a personal murder, and the husband is always a suspect, especially since she seemed to be the target, and robbery was easily excluded as the cause. The reasons behind this was that cash on the kitchen counter had been ignored, and as the killer was speculated to have come in through the unlocked door in the basement, an open cash box with a lot of cash in the basement had been left alone. Also, this person had fired once directly at a sleeping woman. The coroner found bruising on Barbara's hands and legs and neck and estimated the time of death at 2 a.m., but had a wide window of midnight to 5 a.m. Later, when re-examined, this window would be changed to midnight to 7 a.m. The autopsy would show that Barbara had died from a single gunshot wound at close range to the right side of her chest. It had gone through her third rib. Pellets pierced her right lung and heart. The murder weapon was determined to be a .410. Uh, the size of the hole was consistent with a number six shot that can be used in a variety of guns, including the 410. Unlike other guns, shotguns don't leave markings on the pellets, so it is pretty much impossible to say for 100% sure which shotgun is the murder weapon. They were able to use the hole in the comforter to be able to determine what type of gun was most likely used. The markings also showed that the gun was almost touching the comforter. The neighbor's first instinct was that it was Eli who killed Barbara many of them stating he was never home, had multiple affairs, extorted control by withholding money. The Amish loved to gossip, so it can be hard to keep a secret hidden within the community. One source said a neighbor said that he was always dabbling in forbidden things. He had an attraction for forbidden things. Another friend said that Barbara had told her that she wasn't afraid of being harmed by Eli, but she was afraid one of his girlfriends would harm her out of jealousy. 
When asked, the neighbors said they saw no signs of domestic violence, even though they had just described signs. Many people don't know how financial abuse is domestic violence. DV is not only about physical violence, it is about power and control. And many abusers control their partners through money. Signs of financial abuse can include not allowing someone to work, not allowing them access to money, including the money they earn themselves, giving an adult partner an allowance, causing them to lose their jobs, stealing their money, having all mutual property put in the abuser's name, then not giving them access, taking out credit cards in their name, running up huge debts in their name, then not paying. Those are just a few, but there are many more. Contact your local domestic violence center to learn more if you recognize any of these signs. Fanny, her sister, thought Eli had murdered Barbara. He was having affairs, and Fanny pointed the police in the direction of a neighbor who sometimes worked in the store. This was because this woman would go fishing with the men without her husband, and then she told the police to look at his driver, Barb Raber. The Amish are not allowed to drive vehicles, but they can hire people to drive them places, and people make extra money driving Amish around. Barb Raber was 10 years older than Eli, married with three kids. Barb had driven Eli and three other men for fishing on June 1st, and according to the men, Eli acted very nervous and that those two kept huddling together to talk. The police interviewed Eli and thought he was too casual for a man that just lost his wife, even for an Amish man. You shouldn't determine a person's guilt by how they act, and maybe how he acted was typical for Amish. They do not publicly display emotions. They do that in private. But then again, Eli discussed his alibi with the police and told them that Barbara went to the door and saw him off. Even though Eli had an alibi, the police still had to investigate it. Eli admitted that their relationship had been rocky, and then he admitted to only two affairs, one of them being with his driver, Barb, and that affair had ended six years before. When the police asked Eli if he had a number they could reach him at, he said no, Damish cannot have phones. As they dug deeper into Eli's past, they eventually discovered these were all lies, and they discovered Eli had a minimum of four affairs that they could find. When the police talked to these women, they discovered that Eli had talked to these women about killing his wife for a year. Eli joked to his lovers and others about killing his wife. It was probably a way to see how people react so he could feel who would do it. Eli had an online presence that he was able to keep thanks to the cell phone and laptop Barb had given him. Online is where he met many ladies. One site he frequented called MocoSpace was a hookup site. On this site, he showed off his body. Other men said he acted like one of those men who knows they have a desirable body. His screen name was Amish Stud. Later, he changed it to Amish Guy. His subject line read, Who wants to do it with an Amish guy? Eli cruised the chat rooms looking for sex. 
and he had a way to make women obsessed with him. Eli was described by people who knew him as a charmer, a smooth talker. One friend said women were drawn to Eli. Eli led a secret double life because he wanted to be in good standing with the Amish. Oh, before we go on, I want to say here that one of the women he met online, he produced a daughter with. And what's worse, she knew he was married with kids, and she still started the affair with him. Too many times I hear this in true crime. A lot of times when a mistress is pushing for him to leave or gets pregnant, she ends up dead. But that did not happen in this case. But word of advice, if someone you are seeing is married in a relationship and is living with that person, no matter how much they say they will leave, they won't. They are using you. Move on and find someone who will actually appreciate you and not use you. But this lady didn't realize he wasn't going to leave his wife till he got her pregnant. But by then, Eli didn't want to just leave Barbara. He wanted her erased so he could be free. One of his other lovers, he told her that Barbara was mean to him and asked for her to get rid of Barbara. He had tried to convince her that his wife had turned the church against him and she wouldn't sleep with him. This woman saw Barbara as the worst Amish woman ever. I'm sorry, but if a man is telling you his wife got the church turned against them and then he is breaking one of the major commandments with you, I'm going to say you should realize that man is full of shit and is purposely deceiving you. But I know love can blind people to their lover's way, and at least even though she fell for it, she did not help him kill Barbara. Another woman, he told her that Barbara would physically hurt him. This man would rage to his lovers about the Amish ways and Barbara. I think this may have been part of his narcissism, to paint himself as a victim, to get these women to fall for him, and to do whatever he wanted. One woman he had an affair with said she felt sick when Eli talked about leaving his children behind. Here's an idea. Don't have affairs with married men who live with their wife and children. And just like the other women to, to this woman, Barbara was the bad one. But yet this man, who hates the Amish way, still lives with her and apparently doesn't care about leaving his kids behind. And Barbara is the bad one? Hmm... His lover's moral compasses make no sense. But it's just another case of a narcissistic abuser convincing others he isn't the abuser, she is. If he hated being homage so much, he could have left. It's a form of manipulation. I mean, why didn't he just get a divorce? The whole thing about not getting a divorce makes no sense as Eli claims he didn't want to be Amish. He may have been shunned, but why would he care? He's already learned that he can just ask for forgiveness and they'll accept him right back. Barbara may not have been allowed to remarry till he was dead, as that is considered adultery. To me, the only explanation is his parents' money. He may be renting, but they paid for his housing and business. Anyways, this lady I was just talking about actively encouraged him to stay with his wife and kids, but continued to sleep with him. I feel this is worse and have no sympathy for her. 
She did end things with Eli, not because he was married, but because he was a whiny baby. And she started to see that whining about his life was his way to manipulate, and she started to see him less. Now, let's go back to the murder investigation and local suspicion. On June 3rd, the men who had went fishing with Eli met up to go to breakfast together to discuss Eli. Eli had called one of them to see if he had seen Barbara when they picked him up. This person said he had not, and Eli instantly hung up. Eli was trying to set up his alibi that Barbara was alive when he left. On the way to breakfast, they passed Barb's vehicle with Eli in it. Barb was interviewed by the police, and the first time she admitted to the affair, lying about it ending years before, and then lying about not meeting up with Eli after Barbara's murder. Witnesses saw them together. Barb called Eli's friend Mark Weaver, no relations, who had gone fishing with Eli. She was asking him questions to things she should not have known at that point. It was suspicious. Some questions were, are they blaming Eli? Was it a shooting? Do they have any other suspects? She called him repeatedly. He did not answer a lot of her calls or texts. She really wanted to know if the police suspected Eli, if they are looking at others. Mark discussed this with his father and she called. So Mark put it on speaker, which again, she asked if they thought it was Eli, if they were looking at others. Mark's father, thinking it highly suspicious, encouraged Mark to let someone know. He thought she was guilty. Barb also called many people to tell them Barbara was dead. One friend, she even told her the type of gun use, information that no one should have known. Now the Amish did not want any help with this case. They wanted to keep it quiet and actively encourage each other not to talk to investigators. This is a common practice. They simply do not work with the police. So the detectives decided they had to go to the funeral. They knew this action would cause them to trust them, and it worked. Amish folks started reaching out to the detectives. And one pointed out to the detectives that it was very weird that Barb did not attend the funeral. She had gone with her husband on one of his deliveries, something she usually did not do because it was the Amish saying Barb's absence was unusual, they took it seriously. And also at the viewing, it was reported to them that Eli wouldn't look up or make eye contact when people came to him to offer condolences. One person told them he wailed when he was by the coffin, but it had seemed fake and there were no tears. Now, who is Barb? Barb had been adopted by an Amish couple. This couple had had four sons who all died young. The longest one was able to live to the age of seven. They had a rare genetic disorder that now modern medicine could have helped them live full lives. Barb and two other girls were adopted by this Amish couple. From a young age, people realized something was off about Barb. There were lots of issues with her lying as she grew up. Barb married, and even though they had grown up Amish, Barb and her husband started attending a Mennonite church and started to identify as conservative Mennonite. Like the Amish, they have a range of standard for their group. 
Some will live like the Amish, while others enjoy many of modern conveniences that Amish won't. It is the practice of their religion that separates them. An article on PBS discussed how the two groups were one, but they split into two in 1693 over the practice of shunning. The Amish wanted to use it to keep control over their members. Barb did have several affairs. She neglected her children and had been described as a hoarder that her house reflected the chaos in her life. Her husband really was oblivious to her lying and affairs. He believed her, even when the evidence showed she was lying. I mean, she was his wife. The police soon learned how intertwined Eli and Barb were. According to one source, their relationship had gone on for 10 years. It was not just a thing six years ago. Another source said they knew each other for 10 years and the sexual relationship was only for the last six years. But it hadn't ended when Eli and Barb said it had. Also, remember, Barb is 10 years older than Eli, but in her photos, she looks like a 60-year-old grandmother. Barb bought things for Eli, like the laptop I already mentioned, where he would go online to meet women. Barb had bought Eli a cell phone, and when he was questioned by police, Barb changed their numbers so that the police would not be able to get their texts. The police had suspected something was up when Eli had told them he did not have a cell phone, so they called the phone company and got a warrant for his texts. In 2009, they were only able to retrieve five days of texts, and boy, they learned a lot from those texts. They had scrutinized those texts. The fair had never been over. They discovered Eli was pushing Barb to get rid of Barbara. He wanted her dead. Barb couldn't leave her husband, but with Eli's wife gone, it would be easier for her to have sexual relations with Eli. They discussed different ways to poison her, but decided that it would take too long. Here's the worst part of their murder plot. Eli suggested to blow up the house. Barb asked about the children. His response was that they'd go to heaven because they are innocent. And this made total sense to Barb. I mean, how could a mother do that to another mother? How could a father think of doing that to his children? They are both sociopaths. Barbara is in their way, and they want to remove her at all costs. They don't care if the children get in the way. In the end, though, they decide a shooting was the best way. Why, do you ask? Because blowing up the house may cost Eli too much money. Yeah, let that sink in. There is one twist in this story. Remember behind Eli's door is a shanty with a community phone. They had an answering machine for it. The day after the murder, June 3rd at 7.36 a.m., there was a message that said, Eli, we got the wrong person. You can run, but not hide. Hmm. This, as it turned out, was left by another ex-Amish, a one David Weaver, not related to the other Weavers. This investigation discovered that he was also an ex-lover of Barbara, and she had asked him to call and leave that message, and he did. She had also asked him to go to the house and bang on the sides of it, screaming they would get Eli. 
but he refused to do that. This was their idea to try and cover up their tracks by placing suspicion elsewhere that Eli had been the real target, but it did not work. At 4.15 p.m. on June 10th, the police arrested Barb for the murder of Barbara Weaver. She cried, became emotional, and quote, collapsed. She asked about her children. What about Barbara's children? At the same time, Eli was also being arrested in his store. He also became emotional and buckled. He was arrested in front of his children. Now here's where I strongly disagree with police tactics. They're trying to catch murderers and seek justice for victims, but not everyone they accuse is guilty and their tactics have sent innocent people to jail, many being executed for crimes they did not commit. Right away, Barbara asked if she could have a lawyer, which they said yes, but because she asked if she could have a lawyer, not that she wanted one, they never got her a lawyer and continued to question her. The Constitution was set up to protect people's rights because the founders saw how British officials used these tactics to destroy threats, how innocent people could be thrown into prisons. As much as I don't care about actual murderers' rights, they cannot be taken away at the cost of those innocent people who get accused. In questioning, Barb had denied she was involved until they confronted her with her own words in her text. Then she explained that had been an accident. She had only gone there to scare Barbara and the gun went off by accident. She said she was by the door when she accidentally fired the gun. Reminder, the autopsy showed the person had been up close when they fired the gun. It had been touching the comforter. Then she tried to put the blame on Eli for pressuring her. She could have said no, he wasn't with her. She had plenty of time to turn around and go back home. It took her 90 minutes to drive herself there from her house. This was a 30 minute ride. So that shows she stopped and thought and she still did it. The text showed their conversation during this time. Eli instructing her on where to park, how to get into the house, that he left the basement door unlocked for her to bring a flashlight. They read his encouragement, but she still had a choice and she chose Eli and sex. It may have seemed manipulative, but she texted him. She did not want to lose him. She wanted him and did not care if someone died. This would explain his nervousness and constantly checking his phone when he left to go fishing. He knew what was to happen and he wanted to make sure Barb was going to do it. Other things Barb claimed that I do not believe. She claimed she saw Barbara punch Eli a few times in the ribs. Uh, Barbara's children never saw that. And if someone abuses someone else in public, you can bet the abuse will be much worse behind closed doors. No one else ever reported seeing Barbara being violent. Barb then claimed she was afraid of Eli, as she said, he said that he had put down two other women and that is why she carried out this plan. 
Barb is a known liar. Which, at one point, she did recant this story, saying she did not remember going into Barbara's home. The whole tale had been to minimize her guilt. Eli turned on Barb and thought he could control the situation behind bars. Eli told people that Barb was a siren that he had tried to resist. And on August 27, Eli agreed to plead guilty to complicity to commit murder in a plea deal to testify against Barb. So they would get Eli's side of the story. Eli had beat Barb to the deal. I guess it was the best way to get a strong case. They did not have the murder weapon. Barb had access to two 410 shotguns, but they both were missing. They did have Barb's phone and laptop that showed how Barbara was researching how to murder. Barb had refused to make a deal. She wanted a trial. She had been offered 15 years to life, plus three for using a gun. She did not think Eli would testify against her. In a sense, she was extremely loyal to him. Barb did not seem to understand the seriousness of murder. She honestly thought that she would just get community service where she could go around the schools and talk about the dangers of texting. Texting did not cause her to murder. Her desires to have Eli all to herself caused her to murder. Texting is how they caught her and were able to use her words against her. One investigator had thought Barb had been so manipulated by Eli, she didn't think she would be arrested. She went to trial on September 17th. No Amish would sit on her jury, as a 2004 Ohio law exempt the Amish from jury duty for religious reasons. The way the Amish interpret the Bible called for them not to pass judgment on others. That was for God. They were big believers in forgiveness. Barb was found guilty of aggravated murder with the use of a firearm. Barb collapsed upon hearing the verdict and cried. She cried for herself, not the woman she murdered. She kept crying and yelling out, I didn't do it, over and over. Eli was sentenced to 15 to life. They had thought it might have been really hard to convict him without a plea. All he did was leave the basement door unlocked for Barb. On September 30th, 2009, less than four months after Barbara Weaver was murdered while she slept, her convicted murderer, Barb Raber, was sentenced to 20 to life plus three for the gun charge. The judge thought it should be parity to Eli's. Two of the major sources I used for this episode one being the book A Killing in Amish Country, and the other an episode titled Amish Thud. Rebecca Morris, who co-authored A Killing in Amish Country, said on that episode of Amish Thud that Eli saw in Barb a vulnerable person who was easy to manipulate. Eli did have a way to charm women and make them feel very, very important. But to feel bad for Barb for being manipulated? I don't think I can. She was married and had a long affair with Eli, plus multiple affairs. She could have said no. Her feelings and her sexual desire mattered more than a life. 
She did not want to lose Eli. All she had to do was turn off her cell phone and go home. Sure, he may have manipulated her some with his claims of Barbara being mean and violent to him, but you don't murder your lover's spouse. She did it to make their lives easier, something a narcissist would do. But you know what? If she was so vulnerable to be easily manipulated, this shows how she is a danger to society and can easily be manipulated into killing again, and she needs to be removed from society to a place where they can force her into programs to help her overcome her vulnerability. Let's talk about the bruising on Barbara. Some felt because of the bruising on Barbara's neck, Eli had strangled her before Barb shot her to make sure she was dead. They thought Eli was the guilty one, but they seemed to forget that even if Eli had strangled her, Barb still went into the house and shot Barbara. Barbara had bruising to her hands, legs, neck, and scratches on her hands. Barbara had told her sister that Eli could be very forceful during sex, and two days before her murder, she did have sex with Eli. This could explain the bruising. Also, I think being Amish and having to do more work may explain some of the bruising to her legs and hands. Barb's first parole eligibility is April 2032. Eli is not eligible for parole till April 2024 and it is expected to be denied. He has officially been shunned by the Amish. Over the years, Eli has made lots of apologies to the church, asking for forgiveness. They had always granted it, but yet at the same time, he would do it again. There is a strong belief in many that once he gets out, he will want to get back into the Amish life. They would probably accept him back as it is not their place to judge. Now remember, there were six young children in that house that were traumatized by discovering Barbara's body. They have had issues and have had therapy. Barbara's children were split. The eldest two went to live with her sister and the youngest three went to live with another relative. This is information from the 2016 book, A Killing in Amish Country. I've not been able to find any updates and by 2016, Fanny had six young children herself, and that's probably why she could not take all five children. The Amish don't take photos, and the only photos the young children can ever have of their mother are the crime scene and autopsy photos. The youngest was just a baby and will have no memory of their mother. It's hard not to ask yourself, why did he do that to his children? leave them to discover their mother dead? Eli did not care what happened to his children. Also, why would Eli have an affair with Barb? By the accounts of those women, Eli was uh, very attractive and hot, and Barb looked like a six-year-old grandma. The answer is, Eli was assessed with oral sex, and Barb would give it to him any time he wanted it. She was happy this man had chosen her, and he used her. I think Eli wanted Barbara gone so he could stay Amish and not have a wife anymore. His parents were a financial support for him. He had lived on their property. He would not have had his store without them. 
I don't think he was able to make it on his own in the English world. Barb and other women had supported him. The Amish have made some changes. I guess the Amish are more likely to help a woman out of abusive marriages, but that's probably because they want to stay separated from the English. They do not want more attention with another death. This was not the first Amish man that killed his wife. The Amish want to stay isolated. From that documentary on Peacock that I had mentioned earlier, Lots of molestation victims have been encouraged not to report to police the same way that survivors of DV had been discouraged. They, the Amish, want to be isolated. That concludes this episode, and thank you for listening to Death Walks With Us.